0: Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Harlan Carvey. Harlan is currently the Director of Intelligence Integration at Newex. Harlan has been involved in information security for 28 years, which began during his military career. After leaving active duty nearly 20 years ago, he started in consulting, performing vulnerability assessments and penetration testing. From there, it was a natural progression to digital forensics and incident response services. Harlan is an accomplished speaker and prolific author. He's the author of several open source tools, including Red Ripper, and is the author of the Windows IR blog. In this episode, we discuss his start in information security, Windows registry forensics, new artifacts, the importance of communications, mistakes examiners make, ransomware, the commonalities between information security and home beer brewing, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Harlan, thank you for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for for having me.
0: Yeah, well, you know, you've been doing information security and forensics for some time, and I think, you know, if I kind of look back on the timeline, you, you kind of got started before it was a thing, and which is so popular these days. So how did your kind of entry point into the world of InfoSec really start?
1: Well, it really started uh, when when I started my military career. I was a communications officer in of the Marine Corps, so there's a lot of communication security and uh, a lot of uh, the same of principles that apply to information security in fact you know during my initial training uh, one of the things I you know we <clears throat> we were taught was some of the key indicators of uh, a malicious package being sent to us um, you know package that was uh, a little bit denser or <clears throat> heavier uh, misspellings on the address uh, oily markings bad wrapping things like that a lot of those can now be applied to uh, some of the some of the things we see with respect to spam so you know, I started learning that early on. And then, like you said, uh, I, got into, um, I got into the whole information security thing before it was a thing. Um, back when I got out of the military in 1997, uh, I took a job doing a vul- vulnerability assessments. And at that point, after several years of doing that, uh, moving into digital forensics and incident response just seemed to be a natural progression.
0: And with that, at some point, you kind of really honed in on Windows forensics and particular registry analysis. How did you end up on that path?
1: Well, when I was doing uh, vulnerability assessments for a small company called Trident Data Systems, uh, we we were using ISS's Internet Scanner as the product that that we were using. And uh, my boss told me I, I would have to run it for about two to two and a half years to really get used to it. Uh, Within six months, I was working with a couple of other folks to uh, develop a replacement for it. Uh, We we figured out how it was doing the certain checks that it did, and we found uh, we were able to determine when the checks weren't uh, completely right. Um, And I'm not sure if this uh, actually had – because we – was because we actually had hands-on data or or what the issue was, but we were finding uh, in several instances that some of the checks were coming back, for instance, for a registry key, Um, if that key existed – That was the check that ISS seemed to be doing, um, but we found that there were other conditions. Uh, Was it populated with keys? What were was it populated with values or subkeys? What were the values? What were the subkeys? And and how could you make a determination off of that information? So we found that we were getting uh, progressing to be a little bit more accurate uh, with our uh, with our assessment. Um, We actually were able to. avoid a couple of issues by running the two uh, programs side by side. In one particular case, um, there's the default admin logon that you can have for systems, and uh, the Internet Scanner reported that 21 Systems uh, had a default admin logon when it turns out that only only one of them had, and the customer knew it. So if we'd gone to them with the default report from the product, we would have you know, had egg on our face, but uh, uh, we were able to make uh, correct determinations and provide a more accurate information to the client. Uh, that's what got me involved in the registry. And as I started to look around, I was having a great deal of difficulty finding any information about the registry whatsoever, uh, anywhere. Um, so it, it was either being close held or people just didn't have the information. So I started, uh, I started digging into the registry, looking at it uh, programmatically, and then going down to a binary level. And <clears throat> I started to write my own, my own parser for it, um, and from there I found a couple of modules in Perl that worked really, really well and did a much better job. Uh, of parsing the offline registry files for me. Uh, from there, that progressed into not just uh, determining the value of certain keys and the contents of keys and values, but even going so far as to working with uh, Jolanta Thomason um, and having her develop a process for determining uh, how, how to determine in a offline registry file what keys were deleted. And that proved to be a, a, a very big leap. That actually came out in 2008, and that was uh, some pretty fascinating information. But as I still continue to look around, even at this day and age, um, <clears throat> while there are more tools in place, what I don't see is a much, much wider understanding of the registry. I mean, we still get questions today in a lot of the online forms and lists. Where does Windows keep information about file copies in the registry? You know, it just doesn't do that. So I, th- I think there, there's uh, there's still a great deal of understanding that needs to take place within the community. And pretty much the reason I, I picked up the mantle in the first place was, was simply because there didn't seem to be anybody else doing it.
0: And, and with that, do you think, I mean, certainly – The registry being part of Windows and kind of the the Microsoft ecosystem that they they tend to be a little bit more closed than some of the open software um, that you see with other OSs. I mean, has that gotten better? Has Microsoft kind of opened the curtains anymore to say, okay, here's a little bit more about the structures or is it still up to us to kind of dig into it and figure out what's going on?
1: Well, it's still up to us. They're not really that open. And it's not so much about the structures. I think as, as far as the various cell structures have gone, it's it's pretty well known. It's, it's actually been pretty well documented. Uh, Peter Nordahl's uh, open source tool for uh, cracking um, uh, accessing systems offline uh, with the bootable CDs and disks, not that anybody uses disks anymore, but with the bootable CDs, uh, I think that has a fairly good definition of a number of the structures and it's proven over the years to be quite accurate. So I, I don't think it's a matter of of keeping the structures closed source. Um I do think that on Microsoft's side, uh there's been a couple of instances where they really haven't um recovered, I guess is the right word, from mistakes in nomenclature in the past. Uh so that there's folks now, you know, even in today's day and age that are are Googling for for certain topics. And they're finding some of the older information that was put up in the Microsoft uh, website, either under the uh, technical support or whatever the case may be. And they're finding that older information where there's a misuse of terms or possibly some uh, easy-to-misinterpret information that just hasn't been corrected over time. So it's not that uh, Microsoft is necessarily, you know, they're doing their job. Um, Obviously, Windows in the registry is not an (laughs) open-source operating system. But I think that the uh, the various structures have been uh, un- uncovered I- I- enough to where we do have a pretty good understanding of uh, not only the basic structure of the registry, but being able to determine deleting keys and even unallocated space within the registry file itself. I, I think that uh, a lot of that has been documented uh, to a great level. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's understood, <laughs> but I think it's been documented.
0: <laughs> yeah. And now you know, certainly there's uh, you know, more of a rapid development cycle of, of Windows, both on the end user side and on the server side. We're seeing it come out a little bit more frequently. Uh, and with that, are there new things within, newer, newer things within the versions of Windows with the registry structure and artifacts that examiners need to be more mindful of than say they were going from XP to Windows 7?
1: Well, I think looking back across you know the entire family, starting with XP up until what we've got now, I think there, there's you're right. There's been an acceleration, but there's also been uh, a greater range of artifacts being developed, and uh, it's that lack. I, I think there's also it's it's also very difficult to keep up with it. So even though it may seem to be documented to people like me, uh, there are others out there that may not be aware of where that document documentation is. Um, but I do think that there's been a a great uh, acceleration in the artifacts. I mean, from what I've seen, uh, there was a huge leap in available artifacts between Windows XP and Windows 7 and an almost identical leap to Windows 10. There are just so many more artifacts because uh, Microsoft wants to produce for a consumer an operating system that's easier to use. It's more functional to the user and in doing so, they need to record more and more information. So, you know, we go from Windows XP, for example, let's move off of the registry for just a moment, go to event logs, With XP had three event logs. That was it, okay? Now you move up to a default installation of Windows 7, it's 140 files just off of the CD. Move up to Windows 10, I think it's on the order of over 200. So there's a uh, significantly more opportunities for artifacts. Now when you move back into the registry, you know, we've got the same structure, but new new keys are being developed, Um Information is being tracked in different ways. We have different date formats. We have these shell items. Uh, you know, things are tracked in, in in a much more verbose manner in many cases, just within the registry itself. And I'm not even talking about applications at this point. I'm just talking about the base operating system itself. You know, th- so there's 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 clearly a great deal more there. But I think that uh, rather than trying to write down on a piece of paper all the different artifact locations, I think what we need to have as analysts. Is a process that incorporates them.
0: Like, what would that process look like?
1: Well, like for instance, um, my own process for timeline analysis. Um, the way I incorporate registry data, well, it has it has been shown to clearly demonstrate modifications to the registry. Gotcha. So yes, yeah, so just by having that process of incorporating, say, last write time from registry keys. That's it. You know, right in the base timeline and, you know, from, the, uh, from the software hive, uh, the system hive, the security hive, if you like, as well, the default hive, which is kind of kind of big if you're, you're dealing with uh, targeted threat actors or somebody that's escalated their privileges, and then going down to some of the more uh, predominant users just using their nt. ntuser.dat files. But moving on, as you, as you progress from XP to Windows 7 to Windows 10, more information is being included in the user class.dat file as well. So incorporating the last right times, it's not a significantly large amount of data, but it can be very, very revealing if we include those in our timelines. Um, but adjunct to that is understanding the context, and that's extremely important because what you cannot do as an analyst is apply your theory to the data. You have to apply the data to your theory.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a that's challenge that – there's kind of two two factors out now you know there's more and more development that we've seen with some of the forensic tools that can do a better job um and certainly with the tools like you've written and i you know I think we were talk about what you developed before, like red Ripper and you certainly have things like i e f axiom red recon red view Re- there's a there's a bunch of things out there that can parse the registry, but the challenge that I find with examiners is to say, okay well, I processed it, and this is what I have there so that's all there is to see and not thinking okay wait well, you have to understand the context of that and, and and line it up with those other other artifacts you know is there other prefetch or jump lists that you need to look at in the fuller timeline like how do you zoom out and getting people not just to kind of take things at face value
1: oh exactly exactly and understanding the context of, of the particular data source that you're looking at as well I mean uh, one of the big things is the app compact cache data, uh, even to this day, you know, we see folks that, uh, that look at the date timestamp that come with comes from the app compact cache data and they still assume it's the execution time of the file that it refers to and it's not. It's the file system last modification time taken from the standard information attribute. Yeah. So you have to, you, you know, you, you have to keep that in mind. Um, there's been, you know, several folks that have been caught um, because the, the actual executable was time stomped and then executed, so the information that appears uh, in the registry is going as far back as two thousand and nine, so the statement that 's made to the client is hey you 've been compromised since two thousand and nine, and that 's not necessarily the case
0: right yeah. and it's, it's, again' it 's understanding how your tools work um, <laughs> before you you kind of go to oh, go yeah. go to court or go, go to your report on it and it's, uh, it's a tough thing because uh, unpacking the registry or all, all those little nuances takes, takes time and training.
1: Well, it does, but uh, you know, once you get that training you, you know, and incorporate it into the process you use, it becomes more and more natural. Now, I, I know it's more difficult for uh, folks that don't do it all the time, but for incident responders and uh, digital forensic analysts, particularly in the private sector, You know, being able to incorporate that information and uh, become comfortable with using it—it's a much quicker ramp-up time, or it should be.
0: Right. It was some of the you know artifacts that we're seeing now in newer systems, uh, like the AmCache, uh, ShimCache, things like that. Are there other uh, Windows system artifacts that you feel that are becoming kind of gold mines to investigators that we should be looking at a little bit closer?
1: Well, I think the AmCache was a big one. Now that you mentioned that, that was—that's been really huge. The, more so ever since the uh, uh, we started seeing it more in Windows 10 because I think one of the things that we saw with Windows 8 was the introduction of the mcache, and then we saw a retrofitting for Windows 7, but there wasn't a great deal of information uh, that, that jumped out there. But as we moved on to Windows 10 and started seeing Windows 10 and uh, some of the Windows 2012 server systems, the mcache held a great deal of, of information that could be applied to the uh, to, you know, to various cases, like for instance, uh, uh, targeted breaches was a big one. Um, you know, the adversary gets in, uh, runs executables on a, on a specific system. Now the AMCache, even though the executables have been deleted and perhaps there was no instrumentation, process tracking wasn't enabled, the AMCache now has the information you need. It has, uh, you know, file names that would may or may not jump out at you, but more importantly, it contains hashes. You can upload those to, say, uh, VirusTotal. Or, or do a comparison to a list of hashes that you have locally and determine uh, at least possibly what it is. Yep. So that's been very, very useful. Um, but again, it's, it's uh, you know, as we've progressed in versions of the operating system, uh, there's more and more artifacts uh, that have become available, and it really depends on the types of cases you're working now.
0: Yeah, and a lot of it, too, and in, in, I think in so you and both uh, Chris Pogue, who's been on the podcast before, and I I believe you're now working with Chris is a great guy. But we start talking about, um, you know, like sniper forensics, which he brought up in 2008. And I know you blogged on it. But I remember at that time too thinking, yes, why are we not doing more targeted analysis? I mean, with each version of Windows, there's just more and more information, which is good, but it's also signal-to-noise. You you get a lot of information that makes it very... It just takes time and effort to go through, and as we discussed some of that understanding, it's not always easier when you have more information uh but i go back to that that i remember the old the old manuals from from the the australian government the uk government the us secret service was you know from dead box forensics it was you know processing disk images i'm like i i I just need a couple meg registry file to look at i I don't have time three days to image and process so what are your thoughts on how we can kind of continue to reduce the data set or how can examiners approach it in a way that's more meaningful
1: well, I think that really falls back on the community itself um, because we're all seeing similar problems, but not all of us are seeing the same issues and the same problems. And we all come up with different ways to approach the problems. Unfortunately, I don't think we're talking enough to each other, even with our own, even with our, within our own teams. We're not really sharing enough. Now, I know I, I spoke to Obi Carroll several years ago, and one of the things he said when, when he moved into DOJ was he took away individual offices just to force people to talk to each other. Uh, And that's a great management decision, but it just shows that management has to force the issue and get folks to talk to each other. The fact of the matter is that none of us has to resolve all the problems all the time. We see a lot of the same things. We see a lot of, uh, you know, you might have a solution, for example, that it may not be exactly the problem that I was looking at, but the solution is extremely elegant and works extremely well, if I know that it exists. So, having that ability to share and communicate with each other, um, and and not, you know, squandering that opportunity, I think can really go a long way. Especially when it comes to look, we we're, we're we've got these five hundred gigabyte or terabyte drives that are coming in laptops now. You know, I know I just bought my nephew a, a, a new computer for for college, and it came with a terabyte drive. That's a lot of space. is it a lot of data? Probably not
0: yeah it's it's interesting trying to and, and I'm sure you, as, as you've managed teams trying to get maybe some of the junior staff to to do that to kind of speak up. one of my examiners did a, a case where he was able to identify a user using a program Terracopy so my examiner Justin Logue. Finds this does an amazing job of timelining the activity because it it was very rich in its data set and what it was able to show from a user copying files from one device to another. And I said, you know, you you got a blog on this. You need to publish this. There's there's going to be somebody else that comes across this. And there was a little bit of a hesitancy, I think, at first to kind of share that information. Not that he was trying to hoard. It It was I think it was more of a personality. And that's what I I think I see more than anything else. It's the personalities of a lot of the folks that we work with. maybe kind of wanting to hold back and being a little bit shy at times when it comes to this information.
1: Well, uh, to be clear, I've never managed a team. I've worked on teams, uh, but I have seen the same problems. You know, it's, you know, I've seen the the folks that have said, well, you're senior, you've seen everything. Uh, No, that's not the case. But the real issue isn't that the perception that I've seen everything, it's the hesitancy. And this is, this is the reasons that we're using to convince ourselves that we're not going to share you know the fact of the matter is is that we are challenged with uh, a great deal of data potentially to look at, but you've got folks like Chris Pogue that are talking about sniper forensics. You've got fo- other folks that are talking about, uh, you know, Corey Harrell for for example. How um, hasn't been nearly as vocal as it used to be, but talked about uh, categories, defining categories. You know, so if you're dealing with an issue of process execution, what are the artifacts you would look for on a Windows system by you know just by default and then expand out from there um, that give you indicators to process execution? And once you start looking at those, they may be long lists, but they're finite for the most part. And it can give you a great a rich data set to look at, but it's not an entire terabyte. Like you said before, it's only a couple of megs.
0: Yeah. And what's some of the, you know, when you, when you do work with other examiners and, and, and other individuals, what, what do you think of some of the common mistakes that you see people make when trying to go in on an examination?
1: Well, I think the first, uh, the first hurdle that needs to be overcome in any case is accurately defining what your goals are. And then from that point, determining what you need to do to progress to those goals. Um, I, I've seen cases before where an, an analyst has gone in and the client has said, well, we need uh, we need you to tell us all the bad stuff. And without a definition of what quote-unquote bad stuff is, the analyst went off and, and did a very, very thorough job of identifying a great deal of hacking tools on the system and as well as indicators that they'd actually been used. However, when the report was delivered to the client, the issue came up that uh, this individual's job is to use those tools. Okay, so... What needed to have happened previously before that was get a determination of what constitutes bad stuff to the client. Because apparently a treasure trove of hacking tools uh, for you know, interfacing with web systems, doing uh, uh, web application assessments, and you know, basically a, a red team tool set was normal. Whereas that kind of thing to most forensic analysts and incident responders uh, would seem to be bad. So determine the definition of what it is you're looking for, and that goes right back to what Chris was talking about with with respect to sniper forensics. Um, You know, the Marine Corps' motto for snipers is one shot, one kill, but what's behind that is you have a target. You have a defined target that you're aiming for. So what are the goals of your analysis? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to show? I think for a lot of newer folks, um, there is uh, a great deal of difficulty of staying on point. So there are rabbit holes, but you don't have to chase them down. Um, some do. Um, so I think that uh, you know having more experienced examiners uh, mentor the newer ones as far as uh, you know how to stay focused at a standpoint, and then how to actually, what do you need to do to achieve the goals? So what are the right tools to use? What are the right processes? What are the right techniques? And how do you communicate the findings ultimately to the client? I, I think those are. Um, uh, those are central to pretty much any examination that's out there.
0: Yeah, and it seems to kind of come around a little bit, and in, in, I've covered this on in, in past podcasts, but it's the issue of communications and. There's one thing of communicating your findings, but it's also communicating with whether it be your boss, your sponsor, your client, or whoever you're you're working with. uh, What's the scope of the uh, case here? What are we trying to do? And there's a hesitancy within some people that can be very technical to communicate well, or they just don't have those skill sets. So we've kind of come up and starting to see that more and more that communications becomes a very important. Uh, skill and tool to have. And are you finding it in with people you work with, or maybe you're seeing the community that being a challenge as well?
1: Well, with, across the community, I see it as a challenge overall. I mean, one of the things you have to, to, to really consider whether you're doing uh, PFI cases or a um, you know, breach response, or you just received, you know, a hard drive that somebody said, well, I think it's got malware on it. I don't know. Um, regardless of the case, when you're reporting your findings, you have to take it from a, you know, really look at it from the perspective of who you're talking to. It goes, it goes all back to knowing your audience. Um, you know, does, does presenting, um, uh, screen captures of assembly language code for malware, does that communicate anything to the particular client? And if not, then why is it in the report?
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, I've seen a, a, a lot of, um, I think one of the common mistakes I've seen is people try to maybe pad out reports or put in more information that's necessary. Um, and, you know, generally you're not getting paid by, by the word. And it's really, it's like when you know your audience is really get to the point as quickly as you can um, and as clearly as you can. But that always seems to be a challenge. Well, it doesn't always, but it seems to be frequently a challenge with some of the reports I've seen. It's trying to cut out rather than put more in
1: right and and just just basically using plain english to to you know just to get to your point you know what is the point yes you were breached the breach occurred to the best of our knowledge on this date um we are, were not able to tell what occurred following the breach because of a lack of instrumentation and visibility you know all of it's pretty straightforward so why not communicate it in that way I mean, I've seen executive summaries that have gone on for eight pages. I don't know a single executive that would read <laughs> that much.
0: Yeah, you're lucky if you get them through the, fact, the first page.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, I was uh, <clears throat> one of one of the books I'm reading right now refers to uh, uh, somebody that is is pretty. Uh, you know, high up in, in industry at the point at this point, but he started as an intern during the Nixon administration and you know, he was going on in uh, in this story in, in about talking to the president and the president just stopped in mid sentence and said, What's your point? <laughs> so, you know, if we if we start from there and you know, don't sort of try to necessarily you know, demonstrate how smart you are or justify your findings because you're looked at as the expert. I mean, the way I look at this whole, the, you know, incident response community is they have you there. They, they, they've, uh, contracted with your company to have you there because you're the expert capable of doing this. Um, if they didn't need you there, they would have paid for you there. So you're there to perform a function, uh, whatever that may be under the, under the circumstances, but you're looked at as the expert. So just communicate your findings. If they if they have questions, they will ask them. But you know, an executive summary if it if it's getting to be two pages long, you probably need to go back and take a look at it and start stripping stuff out because maybe you don't know enough about the problem.
0: Oh, definitely. And, And so I guess you know we we talk a little bit about you know younger staff and mentoring people. Is what's I guess the one piece of advice you would give to someone who really wants to get into the forensic field? I think it
1: would be, actually, it would be be willing to learn. And part of that involves admitting to yourself what you don't know and having, and not taking everything personally. Because not all feedback is necessarily, well, not all feedback is something that's, you know, meant to belittle you. You know, you you can take some great examples from the military, for example. Uh, You know, after operation, there are a number of special operations forces, Rangers, SEALs, uh, Green Berets, all these guys that have after-action reports. And they talk about what went well, what didn't go well, and how to improve it. But one of the key things about that, and from everything I've read, it does take some time to get used to this, but one of the key things about it is it's not about – belittling an individual on the team or making them feel bad, it's about making the entire team stronger. Yeah, so I mean, for somebody that's new get, getting into the field, be willing to learn, I think is the key.
0: And, and there's that, that openness to it. I, I, I think there was uh, an analogy, I don't know how accurate it was when I was i was taking Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu God from 20 years ago, but uh, one of my instructors said, you know, you get a white belt and the white belt gets dirty over time to the point it's a black belt. And then, you know, the sensei gives you a black belt and basically says, now you're ready to learn because you've basically had kind of your ego beaten out of you to the point where you're open-minded to your, where you're ready to learn. And that's, that makes you an expert is that ability and willingness to learn and kind of ask the right questions and put your ego aside. Agreed. Agreed. And so, one of the things too you've done quite a bit about is giving back to the community. You've had a blog, you've published several books. So why did you decide to give back as much as you have over the past at least ten years that i've I've been following you?
1: Well, with the books, I had difficulty finding the types of books that I wanted to see. you know i've seen I'd seen some of the books that on the title or on the cover said they would address Windows Forensics, but they were really, really light and you know barely scratched the surface. So I thought to myself, um, I've got enough information, you know, in little bits and place pieces, a piece of paper here, maybe a document on, you know, or, or a text file on my computer. And I've got all these little bits and pieces laying around. I think that if I start pulling them together to an outline, they might be more useful. And then from there, it just progressed into, uh, you know, say, uh, a book outline, you know, that was the next logical step. But, uh, I think that, it all started with just producing something that I wanted to purchase. So I I remember the initial conversations I had with uh, the folks at my publisher, which was, if if I'm at a bookstore looking at a book, what would draw my attention? And I started from that standpoint. And then I said, well, if that drew my attention to taking the book off the shelf and opening it, what would get me to go beyond the table of contents or the index? What would really um draw my attention to actually not only reading it but actually looking at it and seeing how I can incorporate that information into uh my own investigations. I mean because what 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 else would be the point of purchasing the book, right? Yeah. I mean I, I spend the money to get this book. It's got all this information in it. If I don't use the information then what was the per- point in spending the money? Anyway, um, I started to see as I attended conferences and started speaking at conferences, I started to see you know the value of of sharing through other mediums. Uh, not everybody can attend conferences. Um, not everybody is out there, um, you know, looking for books necessarily. I know that there's a lot of folks out there that are you know like me, older, and you know have. Have that tactile sense of liking to open a book and write notes in it. In fact, I've got several books on my desk that I'm reading right now that are just completely rife with my own notes and the, you know, and highlights and, and stuff I've written. So there, there's a lot of value there for me to get those types of, uh, you know, communicate in that kind of medium. Um, but giving back to the community, I think, is just just what we, you know, what it's incumbent upon us to do. Um, you know, even the newer folks. Uh, so, some of the things I've said to folks is that. Even if you assume that everybody's seen that same thing you've already seen, whether it's a C2 address or a poison ivy, sharing that information is as valuable as if nobody had seen it before. Because that says it's continuing to be used, which is important, which can be important. So I I think that just that kind of sharing overall… If we can get others to do the same thing and, and you know share those things that are important to our investigations and, and share those things that are important to our analysis processes, you know I think it's that kind of giving back that will just cause the community to grow on its own. Um, I remember back when the uh, um, there was the issue several years ago about private private investigators licenses, and one of the things that came up in the argument was don't let somebody else drive our community and our profession.
0: Yeah, I remember that and it really there was at least several different channels of people uh working to uh f- I guess fight against it would be the best word because it was. Um but it was it was something where, you know, people kind of came together on something and I think you know, as we're certainly seeing now with with some of the newer threats, even something like ransomware. It's just there's a new version of Locky that that's out now. You know, there's it's kind of Getting out there and saying, "Hey, look! Here's something I've ever seen, or here's something I, I want to voice an opinion on," becomes important because it only makes us all stronger when you know, one person raises a hand. Exactly, hands, you get the momentum going.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, speaking of the ransomware, there's uh, something I just read the other day about uh, a new version of ransomware that steals credentials. Um, you know, I, ever since I really started to take a look at ransomware back about March of 2016, that's not something we necessarily saw. Um, and shortly after that, clients were asking questions. Uh, They were asking questions about whether PCI or PII or PHI data was uh, accessed and exfiltrated as part of the ransomware. And my first response, my my guttural response, my first visceral response was, well, no, it's ransomware. But then I started thinking, well, wait a minute. The client asking the question doesn't have the instrumentation in place to answer the questions. How do we really know? Yeah. If all we know is that they've got uh, encrypted files and the encryption and the file extension and the ransom notes all point to a specific kind of ransomware and we have no instrumentation, like we don't have any process creation events, we don't have full command line captures, we don't, don't have any of this, then how do we know that just prior to that, the sensitive information, whatever it is to that particular client, wasn't accessed and exfiltrated? How do we know?
0: Exactly. We don't. Yeah, that the the detection um, tools are not in place.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and I was on a call uh, not too long ago with a client. Uh, actually, the client's attorneys had set it up, and <laughs> you, you know how that kind of goes. But the uh, yeah. the attorneys had set it up, and the client jumped in and said, "Before anything else happens, I need to know: was this sensitive data stolen? Was it exfiltrated? Was it accessed?" And that tells me that that's extremely important you know to to folks out there to know that, you know but it's uh, you know the the answer in that particular case unfortunately was we're not going to be able to tell
0: right and it's it's interesting to see with you know ransomware actually being pretty hot these days um and you know it's interesting it's not that elegant of an attack nor very quiet <laughs> you know where we're used to seeing a lot of the you know the zero days from the past that were you know kind of sneaking in. in data exfiltrating type behavior. I mean, this is something that's very smash and grab and gets in your face. It's hard to miss it. Exactly, exactly. But it's interesting is it's changing, I think, to some of the way that people are responding now. Um, you know, people are having to take a much, much different approach. They're looking at things differently. Um, but, it, and certainly it's to that point too you were saying before, we don't know what data is being exfiltrated. I think a lot of people just have this assumption, oh, well, it's, it's only ransomware. And we really don't know that.
1: Right, right. I mean, with some of the new variants that are, you know, grabbing passwords. Um, the article that I read recently uh, indicated that one of the possibilities for grabbing the passwords is if you're if you're able to get ransomware on the systems, you already have some some modicum of access, even if it's you know obviously through email. So if you get credentials, um, that's another source of revenue, and that's what's driving this entire thing. Uh, ransomwares, you know, what what ransomware really does is monetize. A vast ocean of what most people think are low value systems.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think there was a and good. The fact
1: of the matter is, go
0: ahead. I was going to say, I think there was a good quote that it was, yeah, the, it was in a thread I was reading with you and David Cohen, and I, I believe you said, but you know, it's the the red side business model for ransomware converts a high number of low value blue side assets into high value target attacks with a corresponding high ROI uh, for the attacker.
1: Yeah.
0: And I yeah, thought this that's succ- exactly right. succinctly puts it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's the whole uh, you know, it's the whole perspective of um, well, it's the perspective on the economic value. And I remember you know back in two thousand six, listening to some of the Secret Service uh, presentations on uh, the economic, the economics behind things like Carter Planet and things like that, the structure behind it. And we're starting to see that, or we have seen that, with respect to you know ransomware. Um, you know, just over the past eighteen months alone, you know, we've seen. Uh, a clear progression from just the smash and grab to the targeted approach, like the Samas ransomware, the less targeted approach with uh, the Lachif and other variants that that are being deployed via um, access to terminal servers, things like that that are left open on the internet. But then we start to see things like ransomware as a service. Somebody's producing the ransomware in order to use it. You have to pay a percentage of what you get. So, there's somebody that's that whole, the whole economic structure is being set up around it because people are seeing the value in in, in conducting it. And part of that value in conducting ransomware attacks is the fact that they work.
0: Yeah, they, they, and I think that's to that point is they work, they don't have to be elegant. They don't have to be sneaky. Uh, they, they just need to work <laughs> and they can monetize it based well, on that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I've worked with some uh, newer folks in the industry, you know, some recent graduates and, uh, you know, some of uh, some folks that have graduated as recently as 2017 and have gone into the information security business have have you know have looked at me and said, "Well, wait a minute. I mean, this this isn't a very sophisticated attack. They didn't even obfuscate their their executable. It's like they didn't have to." And, and that goes. You know, when they
0: when. I was going to say it goes to that Go that point of of understanding motive. Um, you know, what's what's behind you know, thinking like the attacker? What's behind them? Why would they be doing this, as opposed to just kind of sitting there guessing at all the different reasons why?
1: Well, I I think that's that's a challenge that we face um, as far as guessing the motive because we are in fact guessing. You know, one of the things that I've 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 seen over the past couple of years is that when somebody sits down to determine what the crown jewels are within their infrastructure, regardless of the vertical they're in, I, I don't know of anybody that's actually had an attacker sit at the table with them.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be great.
1: So you get somebody that's let, let's say, for example, somebody, uh, because it was in the news recently about, uh, uh, there was something about pacemakers. Let's say you're a medical manufacturer. And just for example, you say, well, our crown jewels are X, it's this intellectual property. And then, you, you suffer a breach, and either through uh, some instrumentation you have in place, or some research and, and some investigation, you determine what files were accessed. But what if those files are are nowhere near what you thought were your crown jewels? Uh, because the adversary, that particular adversary, was not after those crown jewels. They're after something else that you had. I mean, look at look at some of the breaches that have occurred through uh, through vendors, like with Target. You know, the original breach occurred, how would that individual have, you know, had they had, a, um, had, had, they had instant response planning in place and, and, and had the ability to, to detect and respond to the attack, at what point, you know, prior to the process would they have sat down and said, hey, look, as, as an organization, uh, as an HVAC vendor, the crown jewels that we have are our access to target. I mean, who would have thought of that? Yeah. <laughs> So, and I I also think that there's a disparity, you know, um, with, with respect to, you know, people like you and me, um, just because you use his name several times, Chris Pug, for example, you know, the three of us are sitting in a room. We, we come from a certain culture. We come from a certain way of thinking. And that certain way of thinking is based on our education and experiences. How can the three of us sit down and assume accurately or with any degree of accuracy or confidence what somebody from say oh let's just throw out china for example is thinking how do we know what the motive is
0: yeah it's usually finding it uh far after the fact and, and then uh, un- unpack right. it months later
1: <laughs> but that's you, but to your point about unpacking it what's your aperture if you have no Uh, means of visibility no instrumentation in your infrastructure and you're missing things like full command lines yeah so you don't know and you're not able to track lateral movement accurately you have a very restricted aperture so you're looking through a keyhole trying to determine the internal structure of a hotel or a hospital and you can't do that
0: so so what do you think are some of the things that organizations can be doing to better protect themselves i mean there's you know, I think we've moved, moved away from perimeter defense to a certain degree. Uh, it's still necessary, yeah. but I mean, there's there's there has to be other things. to got to get people into that mindset, and obviously, from dealing with the amount of breaches you have, I mean, are there are there commonalities where you, you see things over time? Say, gosh, should they only had these types of detect whatever tool it is in place or process.
1: Well, it's, it's a combination of both. And as time is, has gone on, I, I, honestly, I really think this all goes back to a conversation I had with Mike Tanji several years ago. Um, Mike was at uh, Kairos Technology, and he came to me one day and said, look, as an incident responder that's been doing this for a while, what is the one thing that you would want more than anything else during an incident? And I, my response was quite naive at the time, and I said, the logs that I asked for. Because yeah. <laughs> at that point, it was, it was a matter I would ask for logs, and, and they wouldn't be there. Yep. Um, even if we drew a map of devices and Mike said, no, 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 clean the plate, wipe the slate completely clean. What would you want going into an incident that you don't have now? And I said, well, okay. Looking at it that way, full process command lines. I want to know when the process executed, um, what the full path to the image was, what the, what the arguments were and if possible, what the exit code was. If I could get that, that would be huge. That would give me a level of visibility that was just unheard of at the time. And at that point, Mike, you know, figuratively handed me a CD because that's when uh, carbon black was at like zero point eight right, or zero point nine or something like that. And it was it was huge. It was it was huge. Um, you know, one of the things prior to that though was the. You know, organizations had purchased uh, uh, logging infrastructure since to, to pull all the logs together, but nobody was doing anything to ensure that the endpoints themselves were providing meaningful logs. So you'd get people that would, you know, run searches looking for failed logins, and there wouldn't be any. And they'd say, okay, well, there were no failed logins. Well, how do you know? If your are end- points aren't logging failed logins and not sending them to the the central correlation point and you run a search across the central correlation point and don't find failed logins, does that mean that there are no failed logins? Or does that mean that they were there, but you're not recording them? You know, so it's, it's simply a matter of visibility. You're absolutely right. Perimeter defense doesn't work any longer. I mean, there's so many ways around it, whether it's, uh, you know, getting in via email. Um, I had a ransomware case where the, the client had a full, um, protection mechanism on their email server. However, one of the employees had used uh, Chrome to go to their AOL email and executed an attachment from there. And that's how they got affected with ransomware. Yep. So there really is no perimeter anymore. We need to stop thinking in those terms. We need to, we need to look at the perimeter as everything. So uh, you know, having the necessary processes in place, uh, whether it's technology, people, processes, whatever the case may be, to uh, get the necessary level of visibility, uh, in- instrument the infrastructure, instrument the endpoints, get the visibility, do the detection, uh, be able to go back and uh, you know do do a complete run through with the data that you have because you've detected it in a relatively short order. Things like your logs haven't rolled over. I can't tell you the number of systems, be it servers or endpoints, uh, workstations rather, where the security event log covers a day or less. Oh, hours at times I've seen. Yeah. Just well, just because of the amount of data that's data, being long yeah. just it's not really being looked at. So I, I think the key is going to be instrumentation.
0: It's, yeah, and, and, and certainly um, you know, coordinating that as well is going to be a challenge. And, and what are your thoughts on some of the newer technology where it comes down to like AI and machine learning? Is that going to really help us as investigators when we're trying to you know, pull that much data
1: I think it will help us as investigators, but I think it's uh, it, it falls into the the same issue as whitelisting that that I've heard talked about. You know, <laughs> lots of folks have talked about whitelisting applications, but the the in an organization in any private sector organization with a vast number of homegrown applications that you've got in any given place, who manages the whitelisting? Mm. You know, the same thing is true with uh, you know things like well, we have the instrumentation, so how do we call through it? Well there are things that we need to look at. And with my experience as an incident responder, one of the things I've, I've, I've seen is that a lot of organizations that contract for incident response services don't really understand when they do so the level of impact that that contract is going to have on them. So for instance, here, here's an example. Let's say uh, an organization is carbon black and they just have carbon black. They say, well, how do we te- detect bad stuff? So I'm going to ask the question, how do your administrators manage user accounts? How do you create a new user? And what that does is, is that that's a question that requires me to interact. So as part of the incident response, the client is not handing over and completely outsourcing everything. They are required to engage with me. They have to think about these things and give answers. Well, how do your administrators manage user accounts? Well, well, If you do it through a third-party application or you use, like, the Windows user manager, that's important to know because what we can do is we can create uh, particular rules that look for the use of net.exe to create users. And if nobody in your infrastructure uses it, that means if you do see net user add, that's a very, very bad thing. And I'm doing doing the little trademark symbol next to that. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's a very bad thing, so we want to alert on it. But it requires interaction. You know, from the, from the, from the client, from the, the folks that we're working with. I just, I just cannot go in and dump based on my experience dump a whole bunch of rules and assume they're going to be high fidelity because they may not. Well, let's say you, you've got some folks that say we manage all of our users through PowerShell. Okay, great. So how do we detect malicious PowerShell? Because that's kind of a big thing. It has been for you know, a couple of years now. So how do we detect that in your infrastructure? so it's that kind of engagement um and ultimately since uh I'm a consultant I'm not going to be at the site any longer so somebody's going to have to be there to manage it somebody's going to have to know the infrastructure and you know know how to use the tool effectively so there there's that there's that interaction that's required for for the uh, from the client and I think that in some cases um, there are organizations that, you know, have gone out and said, well, look, you know, for compliance or regulatory purposes or whatever, we have to have these things. Or maybe they've said, look, we actually, we absolutely need these things to, to help build our program and protect ourselves. But when they sign for those, uh, those contracts, they really don't understand the level of engagement that's required. You can't simply sign the contract and expect it to be done. You know, there's going to be questions, uh, you know, I'm going to need access. It's like, uh, it's like any incident response. Well, I need an image of that machine. Okay. You need to let me into the data center. Then, you, then I need access to that cage. And then I need to shut that machine down or find some other means. Uh, maybe I need an admin account to do a live image capture. It's, it's not something you can just sign a contract and expect it all to be done.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's getting the right people to the table to start, kind of think through that and understand it from a business perspective. That this is this is this is a business process, and you can't just abdicate it or write it off on a tool or an outsourced party. It was interesting. I was doing something similar with a with a the client recently, doing tabletop exercises, and we went through. They said, "Well, yeah, if you need access, you can just this this person, that person." I'm like, "Okay, now imagine it's three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday when when an attack happens, not during business hours. I mean, attackers don't." punch the clock like you guys, how, how are you going to then do that? And it gets them thinking outside of the box a little bit, but it's, it's that level of engagement of thinking, okay, this is, this is not an IT problem, but this is a business problem. And we need to think about it, uh, in, in broader terms about managing risk. And it's not just about pushing it off onto somebody else, which I think a lot of organizations hope that they can do.
1: Right. And I, I think you hit the, the nail on the head when you said it's a business process. It has to be recognized as a business process because if you don't recognize it as a business process, you're protecting your assets, protecting your organization, um, protecting your investment in intellectual property, in your employees, all of these things are affected by a breach. If you're not looking at it as a business process, then you're not, you're not going to survive because the adversary looks at what they're doing as a business process.
0: Yeah, they're they're well funded, well organized. Um, and I just even see with some of the heard some of the ransomware stories that they have they have help help desk lines. I mean, they they are they, they're they're making money off of this, and it's something that I think sure. we, there was a there was something that I think that you and I were both commenting on on LinkedIn recently too about um, about about people thinking okay they can't be a subject to a breach. And my my comment on it was well look if if you have information you're making money off of and you're running your business off of and you Commoditize it some way. Somebody else can do it too, and it's not about credit cards anymore. It's it's about information, and if your information matters, it's going to matter to somebody else as well.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it could be information. It could be access, and it's not just limited to ransomware. It's you know, it's it breaches. Um, you know, where an adversary gets in and remains quiet for a year, or eighteen months, uh, maybe moves around a bit, collects some information, and by the time you're calling an instant response organization, they've already gotten what they want. Yeah. You know, it's it's got to be looked at as a business process because there's an entire economy behind what's coming at you. I think another um, another mistake. Um, now that I just said that, another mistake that we see a lot is attribution, and on the private sector, not not doing anything until your consultant tells you who's attacking you. That's that's a form of paralysis. You know, I, I my previous employer um, had put a lot of effort into communicating to the community that there is no particular threat group that targets any particular vertical.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I think that's that's it, the, the the I think a lot of people buying into the threat intel feeds, which which are good, but. You know, everybody's a target. It's my opinion. at some form or another. Yeah,
1: but but you're a target by everybody. Yeah, everybody's a target, and you're targeted by everybody. So, I mean, several years ago, um, I was working in engagement uh, on the east coast of the United States, and we had another analyst in Australia working another engagement. It turns out that once we started talking to each other, we had the same threat group. With, and, and when I say threat group, what I'm referring to is a, a set of, of TTPs. But we had the same threat group targeting different geograph, different clients in different geographic locations in different verticals simultaneously. Mm. Ongoing. Yeah. So it wasn't like you go out, let's say, just grab out like a number out of the air, like APT28 or whatever you want to call it, or fancy dancing panda or whatever there, there is nothing there's nothing to show that you have that group only targeting healthcare or financial or manufacturing or energy. It's you know if you look at the data that, that people have got, these threat groups are here one you know attacking one client, one vertical, one geographic location here, then they're on something else. So I think that, you know, especially with within the private sector, and I'm not so naive to think that attribution doesn't matter in the federal sector, it does, but within the private sector, as an incident responder, when I'm trying to stop the bleeding and and work with the client to, to really get a grasp on things so they can go to their board, at that point, who did it is irrelevant. It's a distraction. If you want me to stop and de- try to determine that, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I can do that. But the fact of the matter is, is, what we really need to do is find out A, how they got in, B, uh, what they took, what your exposure is, and, and C, what we can do to prevent it from happening again in the future.
0: Right. Yeah, the, the who did it is, is the least important after when, once your data is going out the door. Agreed. Now, one of the things, I recall, before we finish up, if, if you're also an aspiring home beer brewer, are you still doing that? Oh, very much so. How did you get started doing that?
1: Uh, Well, oddly enough, after four years in a military college and eight years in the Marine Corps, I wasn't a drinker, and then uh, when I met my wife, uh, she was uh, a social drinker, and uh, it was kind of, uh, I think, a little bit uncomfortable for her that I, I wasn't imbibing, so um, I'm not a big drinker. So what I decided to do was focus on beers. And as I learned, I learned more cause I'm, I'm I, I take something of an academic approach to these kinds of things. Oddly enough, it just wasn't about drinking beer. It was about, well, where does this come from? What is, where, where do the flavors come from? Why is this beer different from this beer besides the bottle and the label? And you know, I pour it in a glass, and I can't tell them apart, but they're wildly different. So, what made that happen? And of course, there was my association with Corey Alltide. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, and I'll just kind of leave that there. <laughs> but you know, at one point, uh, I decided that I was going to become something of a beer snob, uh, and I started to learn a little bit more about beer and got more particular in my tastes. Um, and then my wife said, "Watch, take it to the next level and brew your own." And that just opened up a whole new world to me. So it's kinda like a you know, it's kinda like having your first chemistry set, except nothing blows up. Well well, not nothing. I mean things can blow up and have, but <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 just a lot of fun and, and you know, from a home brewer's perspective, there is no bad beer. I mean my worst beer is still something I prefer to drink than some of the commercial stuff. Sure. So.
0: do you think there's any particular DFR DFIR skills that you know, maybe a mindset to help play into home brewing.
1: Oh, quite the opposite. I think there's home brewing mindsets that play into the FIR uh-huh. documentation. Okay. I, I think the best example I've ever seen is Will Wheaton did a brew with one of the guys on the or a couple of the guys on the podcast, and Will Wheaton not only keeps uh, a logbook of everything about his brewing, you know, exterior temperature. Uh, what the different grains and amounts are, the hops he uses, when he adds the additions, the temperatures of the water. He not only puts all that information, but he also includes the music he listened to while he was brewing. And I think that if more DFIR folks uh, kept case notes and documentation, uh, I, I think that would then lead into, uh, you know, obviously you can't share client and case-specific information, but if they kept uh, their case notes That would lead into, well, I've seen across 12 cases, I've seen these things in 10 cases, and I've seen these other things in eight of those cases, and you could share that information. I think it would lead to more sharing, more education, um, and I think it would lead to a stronger community overall, and besides, I mean – how can you not have a strong community? If, you know, when you're coming together and drinking beer.
0: Seriously, it says pull people. I didn't you know, thought about it that way. I'm thinking about my Evernote now. It's probably got more details on cocktail recipes and food recipes than some of my case notes, which is which is embarrassing. But yeah, but yeah, <laughs> you have to kind of apply well, the same I, passion.
1: I, <laughs> I have a blog for my uh, for my beer recipes that I I put up because I I've actually done collaboration brews with a guy down in Florida. And I recently shared uh, one of my recipes with him, and, and he looked at it. and He's actually he actually comes from a cooking background, so he's and he's a professional home brewer. Uh, but he looked at the recipe, and, and he literally said in the Facebook chat, "I hadn't thought about using uh, Munich malt in those in that particular recipe. It would definitely lower the astringency." So you know, by sharing what I was doing, I get feedback from him, and it, it, apparently, I shared something with him that he at least what he professed was he hadn't thought of those things before. And I think, wow, if I could just take something like that and apply it to what I do professionally during the day, um, think of the power that's there. Think of the power in that kind of communication and sharing.
0: Yeah. It's sharing is caring. Um, well, certainly if you're ever out in Colorado, uh, come out, you know, definitely let me know because we have plenty of uh, breweries out here. It's, it's, in, it's insane the amount of different beers that they have and uh, the culture out here, which is great because we also have an aspiring information security community as well. So I think the two go hand in hand uh, together.
1: Oh, definitely. Okay. Definitely. I'll take you up on that. Yeah.
0: So where, where can people find you online? I know you've, you've kind of had we talked about your blog and book, but where, where are some of the places that people can find you these days?
1: Well, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm back on Twitter. Uh, I dropped off for a while, came back, I guess, to, um, to the chagrin of some and the surprise of others. Uh, but, uh, Jamie Levy was sending me so many links, uh, you know, on a daily basis over Google chat to different stuff that she was sitting, seeing on Twitter that, uh, i was like, you know what, maybe I just need to, I need to get back in and, and see a lot of this stuff for myself. Uh, so there's that, um, there's my blog, um, and that's pretty much it. I mean, I'm on Facebook, but I don't do anything with forensics on Facebook. So.
0: Gotcha. Well, I'll be sure to put all those in the show notes. But uh, I greatly, Great. greatly appreciate you taking the time today for being on the show. Thanks for all the insight.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I greatly, uh, I greatly appreciate talking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks, we'll talk soon.